One of the things I like to do in my spare time is garden. And uh, I have noticed something very interesting and disturbing in my garden. And that is, every year, a bumper crop of weeds grow. Now, I have never planted any weeds in my garden. But every year, they grow all by themselves. Of course, when it comes to the vegetables, if I don't plant the vegetable seeds, they never grow. If I don't make effort, they never sprout up in my garden. But the weeds grow in and of themselves. They are natural to the soil. Well, this is kind of how it is when you are a Christian. Sin tends to grow all by itself. You don't have to learn how to sin. You are born a sinner, and you sin because you are a sinner. And no matter how hard we try, it seems that there is always a bumper crop of sins trying to sprout up in our lives that we need to deal with. And these sins cause problems. They cause uh, anguish. Um, They bring God's disfavor. They strike blows at his heart. And as Christians, we need to be people who walk holy before him. Now, when you start looking at our lives and you start thinking to yourself, well, why is it that people are struggling today, even in the church? Why is it that so many people have so many problems? Well, I would have to say that by and large, most people treat the Bible as something old, something outdated, something archaic, something that, you know, it used to be good, but now we have Prozac. We have dial a horoscope. We have all kinds of talk shows and radio shows and and worldly um, therapy devices. And many Christians are turning to the sludge and the sewer of the world to try and help them overcome their sins and the consequences of their sins. And this is a shame. People, God's Word has all the answers you will ever need for life and godliness. And God's Word will not only cause behavior modification, but life-transforming change. And that is what the section of Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14 is all about. It is about the transforming power of the Word of God. So if you find Psalm 19, we're going to look at verses 7 through 14. And while you're looking for it, I just want to give you a little bit of background to the book or to the chapter of this psalm. David is writing this psalm, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist. And he is explaining to us some important things we need to know about revelation. Now, if you were to do any uh, theological studies, you would discover that revelation comes in two different kinds. There is general or natural or nonverbal revelation, and he talks about that in the first six verses. It says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. It's real similar to what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 when he says it can be seen through creation and what has been made that God exists. Then, in the latter part of the psalm, David switches from natural revelation, those things we learn about God from creation, to 
specific revelation, special revelation, verbal revelation. That is the word of God itself. And so in this psalm, in these seven uh, verses or eight verses from 7 through 14, we are going to be confronted with the very truth that God's inspired word is something that is going to transform our life. And I want you to leave today with three important truths etched upon your heart, and that is this. God's Word will change you if you let it. And secondly, the Word of God is your greatest treasure. And third, the Word of God enables you to give glory to God. Without the Word of God, we cannot give glory to Him because we must worship Him in truth and his word is truth. So let's look at verse 7 through 9, and we'll go through this in three different chunks. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. In these first Three verses, verses 7 through 9, the psalmist basically has a specific structure where he gives a synonym for God's word, then he gives an attribute of God's word, and then he tells us what God's word does for us or what benefit God's word is to us. Now, as we go through here, I want you to keep in mind all the time, all the things that people, and many of you may have done this, gone out into the world to try and find answers to problems, hurting people, people with problems, people with struggles, people trying to overcome sin. And I want you to remember that God is telling you, and he's telling me in this text, what God's word will do for you. And God cannot lie, so this is true. Look at verse 7. It says, the, the first stanza says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. First we have the synonym law. The description, perfect, the benefit, restoring the soul. And this is how it happens in the first three verses. What is the word law? It's the Hebrew word Torah here. It describes basically, it's a general term to describe all of God's laws or all of his teaching. God's teaching is everything we find in his word. The whole biblical, what they call canon. And here it says, the law of the Lord. And that little phrase, of the Lord, is important. It's not just a law of men. It's not the law of Moses. It's not the law of the Apostle Paul. Primarily, it was written by God who moved through the Holy Spirit so that men would write down perfectly what he wanted them to say. This is the law of the Lord. And what's interesting, when you look at the first six verses, if you look at 19.1, you'll see the heavens are declaring the glory of God, Elohim. That is a general term for God. But then when, they talk, when he talks about God's word, verse 7, and also at the end, verse 14, the last line, he uses a different word, Lord, Yahweh, um, what theologians call, and this is a great word, the ineffable tetragrammaton. That's a good one, isn't it? Uh, it means the unutterable four-letter name. And so if you ever get in a conversation with somebody and want to wow them, you just throw that out and you can stump them. Now, here he says the law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect. 
The Hebrew is literally complete, full. It, it encompasses everything. It's also used of sacrifices that were, were spotless and without blemish. God's law, which belongs to him, is spotless, full, complete. And this tells us that you don't need to worry that you have some problem which God didn't think about. That maybe there's something in your life that is new under the sun that maybe he forgot to give us instruction on. No, the law of the Lord is perfect or complete. And notice what it does for us. Look at the end of the phrase, restoring the soul. This first line tells us that the perfect law of God is able to transform you, convert you, restore you. It is able to change you back into what Adam was before the fall. By studying it, by meditating on it, by packing it in the safe of your heart, it will slowly transform you into the very image of Christ himself. Now, the question you need to ask yourself is this. Am I taking the medicine that God has prescribed for me in his word? I mean, think about it. What person, if they were bit by some deadly viper, would refuse to take the antidote? And you would say, well, that that would be foolish. Yet how many Christians know that God's word will change their life, but refuse to take their medicine. People, this isn't good. It's not good when we just give lip service to the word of God, but then as soon as we get a chance, we run for the things of the world. You need to believe God that his word and his spirit working through his word is able to change you. It will change you. And just as you restore an old car, so the Word of God restores you. It takes out all the dents of carnality and all the little imperfections in your life. It slowly changes you. Paul, speaking about the ability of the law to change our lives in 1 Corinthians 3.18, says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory as from the Lord, the Spirit. As you look into this perfect mirror, you are transformed in the image of God. You remember what happened with Moses? I mean, he goes up on the mountain. He, he says, Lord, show me your glory. I mean, give me the, the full blast. And God says, Moses, if I were to do that, you would die. He says, I'll tell you what. I'll stick you in the cleft of the rock. I'll hold my hand over you. I'll pass by, and you can see the afterglow. And when Moses does, he comes down off the mountain, and what was he like? He was glowing like a light bulb. I mean, he was radiant. And that is what the Word of God is like. When you spend time in the Word of God, God's character, the image of Christ, begins to reflect in your life, and people can see it. People can see you change. Next we come to the second stanza in verse 7. Notice what it says. 
Not only is the law of the Lord perfect, restoring the soul, but the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word of God is described here as a testimony, something that bears witness, something that tells you about God. If you want to know God, this is where you go, because God will tell you about himself in this book. And God's testimony is described as sure, as something fastened, as something immovable, like a lighthouse in a storm. Even though the, the waves crash against it, it doesn't flinch. It is sure. And God says that his word is sure. And notice what it does. It makes wise the simple. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge. Not just knowledge, but the ability to apply knowledge. For instance, I could give you a manual on how to fly a 747, and you could read that manual, and you might have knowledge about how to fly one. But believe me, I wouldn't want to get on that plane and let you try. You see, I would want somebody who not only had the knowledge, but knew how to apply the knowledge and had wisdom. That is what wisdom is. And God is saying here, if you are simple, if you are immature, if you don't know what's right or wrong, if you can't discern the truth, God's word will give you practical understanding of his will in a way that you can apply it to your own life. And be wise. Now look at verse 8. It says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The word precepts or statutes emphasizes the responsibilities God places on his people, and they are described as right, literally straight. These precepts are right, and they are straight, and notice what they do. They rejoice or make glad the heart. I'm telling you, there are people all over the place looking for joy and for happiness and for gladness and not finding it. I mean, they are just scrounging around every single place in the world to try and lift up their heart, to try every sinful indulgence and every sort of carnality. Why? Because they're looking for fulfillment. They're looking for joy. They're looking for happiness. But here, the psalmist says that the precepts of the Lord are right or straight, and they will make you happy. They will rejoice your heart. Now, don't be deceived into thinking you can find happiness in the world. It will deceive you. All those sinful things in the world are like lead bricks to sink you to hell. They are like a, a hook, a treble hook concealed in you know, power bait for you who are fishermen. Yes, Satan wants to indulge you. He will give you momentary pleasure if he can drag you down with that pleasure. But we need to remember, as Isaiah says, there is no peace for the wicked. The world's pleasures, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life do not bring happiness. Oh, they may bring temporary happiness, but then comes the consequences which are painful. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, 
How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is what? In the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he describes this man who meditates in God's law day and night as blessed, literally happy, fulfilled, content. He's blessed. Look at the fourth stanza. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The word commandment or statutes describes those firm, black and white statements that God makes. Do this, don't do that. And they are described here as pure. That is, they are undefiled. There is nothing at all that corrupts God's word. It is totally pure. Look 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 at what it does for you here. It says, it enlightens your eyes. You know, so often we settle for things that are impure. But purity is really an absolute quality. There is no such thing as 95% purity. It's either pure or it's defiled. You know, if I were to put a five-gallon bucket of water up here in one of those big jugs, you know, that you get, and those, that jug had perfect water in it, let's say, and I were to just add a teaspoon of cow manure in there and stir it up, would you drink it? No. Why? Because it's defiled. But then I say, well, hey, hey, come on, man. It's still 99.9% pure. What's wrong? You don't have anything to do with things that are defiled. Why? Because you don't know what part is. But God's word is pure. Perfectly pure and undefiled. And it enlightens your eyes. It is a divine flashlight, so to speak. It shows you the way to walk in this dark world. You know, the scriptures say that those who do wickedness their lamp will go out in a time of darkness. Why do they say that? Because there's one thing to be walking around in the darkness with a light, but without a light, it gets really dark. I remember one time I was elk hunting in Idaho. We have elk in Idaho. And um, we were out chasing this bull who was bugling, and he kept running away from us, and we were trying to draw him in during bow season. And we got way way far away from camp. We were running after this thing for about two hours straight just through the thick forest. And it was starting to get overcast, and finally it was getting dark, so we sat down, drank some water, and then we had to go back. And it was pitch black. When we stood up, I could not see my friend except for just just a barely a faint image. It was so pitch black because there was no moon, There was overcast, and here we were out, and I'm glad I had a compass and a flashlight and two extra sets of batteries. (laughs) We're always prepared. We end up getting back, but boy, without that flashlight, it would have been bad. And that's how it is if you're in this world and you don't have God's light. It's bad. You can't find your way. You get lost. You fall into ditches. You get hurt. You have problems. God's word enlightens our eyes. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 130, the unfolding of thy word gives light and understanding to the simple. You have a light in your hand, the word of God here, and you need 
to turn it on in your life. Look at verse 9. We read, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The word fear is not a normal synonym for the Word of God. As a matter of fact, it is a word that describes a consequence of studying God's Word. For instance, you know the proverb says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And that the fear of the Lord prolongs life, and the fear of the Lord does all these things. Well, how do you get the fear of the Lord? It's by getting to know God and understanding He is holy, He is just, and this causes you to have reverence and fear for Him. And that is how the the Word of God here is called the fear of the Lord. And notice it is described as clean. That is, it doesn't have any garbage hanging on it. It is perfect in that it gives us everything we need. It is clean. And it refers to all the moral and ethical purity of God's Word. That is, if you follow this, it will make you clean before Him. And notice the benefit here, enduring forever. And you think, well, how is that a benefit? Well, just think of all the written rules Think of all the governments that have come and gone. Think of all the legislation that has been written and rewritten and all of those things. And think of how disturbing it is to have your eternal um, life resting on a law which changes every couple of years. You know, this year you're saved by works. Next year you're saved without works. Um, This year you have to go on a holy pilgrimage. Next year you don't. I mean, it would be frustrating. But what's neat about God's Word is is it always stays the same. It endures forever. And that is why it is such a great treasure. Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, when speaking of the Old Testament, heaven and earth will pass away before one jot and tittle passes away from the law. That's encouraging to know. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You can always come to the scriptures and they never change, and the God who wrote them never changes. And herein lies the practical application. You can always come to God's word and get the same answer because the God who wrote it is a never-changing God. And finally, we come to the last stanza in verse 9. Look there. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. The judgments are God's pronouncements. This is wrong and this is the consequence. Those things God lays down as right or wrong and the judgments he prescribes. And these judgments are described as true. God is never going to um, be up in heaven and go, my goodness, I, I threw Jack Hughes into hell and I, I made a mistake. He's been burning down there for years. God never errs. He has all the knowledge. He has all the information. And he sorts out all information perfectly. His judgments are true. And they are righteous all together. Do you have problems? Do you have sins that you are trying to put to death? Are you having trials? Are you hurting? Are you needing to grow more into the image of Christ? God's word is what you need. Not the world, not secular psychology, not drugs, not fleshly indulgence, not self-help books. 
What you need, look at the text here and just read down. You need the law, the testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, and judgments of the Lord because they are perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And because they have these qualities, they are able to restore your soul, make you wise, bring rejoicing to your heart, enlighten your eyes, give you something to trust in because they will never change and they are righteous all together. And that is why this book is such a great treasure. And that is why, there's verse 10. Now David, after describing just how neat God's word is and how it can just just change your life and transform you into a different person, into the person and image of Christ, he just launches off into... Let me tell you how neat God's Word is. Let me tell you the value of God's Word. Let me tell you why God's Word is the most valuable thing that you have. And notice what verse 10, and we're going to look at right now, verses 10 through 13. He says here, They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Well, that's pretty valuable. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. That's pretty sweet. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be quitted of great transgression. Here, he gives us nine reasons why the Word of God is such a valuable treasure. And we'll look at these quickly. First, he says, they are more desirable than gold. Now, don't miss what he's saying here. Gold has always been, in almost every society that has ever existed, the most valuable trading commodity. And here he says, the Word of God is more desirable than gold. But he doesn't just say that, does he? He says, no, it is more desirable than much gold. And not only that, but much fine gold. Now, he does not say it is as desirable as much fine gold, but more desirable than much fine gold. What he's saying here is that God's word is the most valuable thing, the most valuable possession you have. Not your car, not your house, not your stocks you bought in Yahoo before it went skyrocketing. You know, this is the most valuable thing that God has given you. It leads you to the Savior. It trains you. It equips you for every good work. It gives you everything pertaining to life and godliness. His Spirit moves through the words of this book to change your life. He says they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. And again, the question we need to ask ourselves is, do I treat my Bible like the treasure it is? Or do I just keep it on the shelf? You know, carry it under my arm when I go to church because it's kind of a symbol of a Christian. Spurgeon said, there is dust enough on some of our Bibles to write damnation with our finger. Scary thought, isn't it? Your Bible is not a decoration. You are to live by this book. Why? Because this book is God's book. 
and it contains his word to you to help you with life. Think of all the effort we put into going to work and accumulating things on earth. Think of all the miners who gave their life, not to strike it rich, but just at a chance to strike it rich. And yet here, God tells us that your Bible is the mother load and everyone can strike it rich. That's why it is so valuable. The second value of the Word of God is mentioned in the next line. It is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. In the Hebrew culture, you know, they didn't have NutraSweet or sweet and low or refined sugar. The sweetest thing they had was honey. And I relate to this verse because when I was growing up, we, we raised bees. There was this you know, big swarm of bees up in the tree that just came, and they were looking for a nest. And so my dad and I found this beekeeper and bought a box from him. And we started reading up, and we went up there at nighttime and knocked them all inside of the, the box and, and set up a little beehive. And, um, and we put a stick over the front of it so they couldn't get out, so they kind of get used to being in there. And the next morning, we took the stick off, and uh, they all flew up in the tree again. So then the next night, we got them, and we put them all in the box again and put the lid on, put the stick in front of it, let them sit there overnight, and took, and they stayed in there. And then in the upper part where the honey is formed, in the fall, we used to take it and smoke the bees a little bit and brush them off and pull out these perfect little sheets of honeycomb. And man, I'm telling you, that was a treat. Just to, just to gouge all those cells and let all the honey run out. It makes you hungry, doesn't it? <laughs> and then when you'd eat it, there would be wax in there, and the wax would be kind of like honey-flavored gum. It was great. And here David says, the word of God is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. When you come to the word of God, is it like that to you? If you're living in sin, it's probably bitter as wormwood. But to those with broken spirits and contrite hearts, it is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You know, I, I get paid to study, and so, you know, I kind of have to do it. And uh, I go into my office sometimes, and sometimes I feel like, you know, the exegetical machine. You know, you get in there, you sit down, you start plowing through a verse, you look at context, you do word studies... And, and before I start, it's kind of like thinking of working out sometimes. You, it's easier to think about working out than actually doing it. But yet, once you get going, and once you start pouring over the scriptures, it's good. It is so good. A lot of times I have to get up and run around and find somebody in the office and say, look at this, look at what I found. This is a neat truth here. It's great. It's so encouraging. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 15, 16, Thy words were found, and I ate them. And thy words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I have been called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. I hope you develop regular times in the word where you study, where you just think, where you just meditate. Not that you're just reading, but you're thinking. What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about how to live life? 
and it will be sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb to you. Notice the third reason why the scriptures are a treasure, verse 11. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. This is an important aspect of God's word. You know, just think of a big minefield. The earth is like a minefield. And Satan has laid all these mines out there. So many Christians try and learn by experience. This is not a good way. To just run out in the minefield and find out where the mines are by chance is not a good way. The best way is to go to the person who knows where all the mines are. And he says, go this way and go that way and you will make it through. That's why God's word is so of, so of great value is that it tells us where the mines are. David continues giving us a fourth reason in verse 11. In keeping them, there is great reward. Notice this verse does not say in knowing them, there is great reward. You know, so often, I remember being this way, especially as a young believer, you know, I did the navigator's thing and memorized 120 verses and, you know, I could just outquote most people, get a little discussion with them, kind of blow them away with my verses. Yeah, what about this verse and that verse? And he says, no, no, it's not just in knowing the word, but in keeping it, there is great reward. In applying it, Thomas Watson, the Puritan in Elizabethan era said, knowledge without practice is but a torch to light men to hell. You need to remember that as you learn more, it just increases your accountability and responsibility. It doesn't make you godly until you apply it. And notice that there is not just a reward, but a great reward. We look at others and we get depressed because we can't have what they have. Um, we were driving around yesterday and Lou was taking us around the, I don't know, somewhere. And, um, And there were some really nice houses on this one street. I mean, some of them were really gorgeous, really gorgeous. Big lots and all fixed up with perfect yards and big arches and all kinds of fun stuff. And we think, oh, yeah, that is a nice house there. And we go, yeah, we better get off this street, you know, before we start being envious. And so often we envy other people because this guy has the Porsche and we just have the olds. Or this guy's got the, you know, Chevy 4x4 Cindy cab, and we only have the 67 Ford. And we can begin to regret the fact that God has not given us enough stuff. Paul described your reward, the great reward that every single believer will have who knows Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, when he said this. Let's listen to this. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even imagine what God has given you in Christ. Your reward is so great that you can't even fathom the depths of it. You can't even think of it. It's so huge. 
And you remember that next time you're thinking, oh, look at that person. They're, they're, they've got a nice house or they got a nice car. Remember this. The wicked, those who don't know Christ, will receive all the good they will ever receive in this life only. The righteous will receive all the bad they will ever receive in this life only. And for eternity, will have a perfect happiness and a perfect reward which is beyond imagination. I mean, Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that the sufferings of our present time are not even to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in the saints. Don't even go there. Don't even try and say, well, you know, I've suffered this much and I hope I get my rewards. And that is an insult. God is going to reward you beyond your wildest imagination. Notice the sixth thing. The sixth benefit, David is praying. He says, acquit me of hidden faults. These are those sins that you do that you don't know you're doing. Those are those hidden faults, the ones that you you sin in ignorance. And here he says, as you come to the Word, because it brings you to the Lord, who is a God of compassion and forgiveness, it leads you to Christ. When you come to the Scriptures, God acquits you of hidden faults. I mean, imagine how terrible it would be dying and going to heaven and God pulls out this list that's miles long and says, you know, you never actually repented of these sins. No, when you come to the Word, it brings you to the Savior who acquits you of hidden faults. But not only does it do that, look at verse 13. It says, also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins, and he says, and let them not rule over me. Presumptuous sins are those sins you know are wrong. God says, don't be anxious, you're anxious. He says, pray without ceasing, you don't. He says, love your neighbors yourself, you don't. You see, those are high-handed sins. James says, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is what? It is sin. And not only do you get to get acquitted of hidden faults, but you get held back from those presumptuous sins. You remember what Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hidden my heart that what? I might not sin against thee. Yeah, God's word is like a guardrail for your life. It kind of keeps you from jumping off the cliff. And every time you neglect to read the word, it's like the rail is being disassembled. And off you go. You need to keep that word strong in your heart so that it'll keep you from going off the edge into sin. And notice what he says then again. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of hidden faults. This is great. Not only is the outcome that God is going to take you and acquit you of hidden faults and keep you back from presumptuous sins, but he is going to make you blameless. Blameless. Nothing to blame. And it says, acquitted of great transgression. You know, so often people just don't understand what sinners they are. You know, the thoughts and intentions of men's heart are only evil continuously. They go astray from birth. The heart is best really sick and deceitful above all else. 
Romans say, or Paul says in Romans, you know, there's none who seek after God. There is none who understand. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet God will forgive you of all of those sins as you come to the word, the word which is able to lead you to Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, who will forgive you of all of your transgressions and make you blameless. How great. The ninth and final reason in verse 13 that I shall be acquitted of great transgression. That is such a great truth to hang on to. I love that. I mean, we all know we're sinners. And we all know we sin every day. I mean, what, what, what command is there in the Bible that you keep perfectly? I mean, welcome to the club. None of us do. And yet God will forgive you of every single sin you ever had. And you will stand before him spotless and blameless on that day. Now, here comes verse 14. This is the last point, and this is probably the most significant one. And that is, God's word enables you to give glory to God. It enables you to give glory to God. Notice what he says in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth, that is, those things you say, and the meditations of your heart, those things that you think about that give rise to the things that you do, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're here for, to give God glory. We sang about it this morning, to give him praise to let our lives be a living sacrifice to Him. And God's Word helps you to give glory to the One who created you. It helps you to fulfill the very reason why you exist. And that is why, people, we need to read our Bibles. That is why God has given us His Word, so that everything you do, everything you think about, your whole life will become transformed in the image of Christ. And I would ask you this and challenge you before you leave today with this. Are you studying your Bible? Are you regularly in the Word? Are you hiding God's Word in your heart? When the Jehovah Witness comes to the door and says, Hi, I want to share some truths about the kingdom. And they say, Oh yeah, Jesus isn't God. Can you show them from the Scriptures where it does say he is God? Are you ready to give an account for that hope that is within you? Do you know the verses that relate to your problems? People, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness in this book. But you must take the medicine. Take your medicine every day and give God the glory for the results. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for all that you give us. And Father, we are unworthy servants. And we thank you that your spirit attests your word that leads us to salvation. And Father, gives us all the things we need and equips us for every good work so that we can obey you in every area of your life. Father, change us, transform us, Make us better worshipers, better obeyers, better servants of you, that you might receive all the glory. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. 
O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.